As always, we're thankful that God has blessed us with the degree of health that He has this morning. And I would invite you to consider with me for the next few moments a lesson I've entitled, God's Demand for Repentance. Repentance is a subject that is often an interesting one in the Word of God and one that occasions a great amount of interest in the Holy Word of God. And yet, as far as practical application, it can be perhaps the single most challenging part of the entirety of God's plan of salvation. Have you ever thought of it this way? It only takes a moment to plunge someone beneath water. It takes a very small amount of time for someone to say, I believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. But yet, the attribute of repentance can be so challenging, in fact, so demanding. In fact, you and I, even as Christians, we often struggle notably with it. Let's study just a few moments this morning about it. The blessing that's ours to assemble as we are brings us to appreciate the sweetness of opening the Word of God and for the few moments that we have before us now to be led into the, truly the things of the great truth of God. I hope you have your Bible handy. We'll be looking at a number of passages of Scripture. We'll be starting on this next slide as follows. There's a slogan that perhaps has become the mantra. It is a frequently occurring one in regard to so many community churches and other kinds of religious organizations that are sprouting up all over the place. Come as you are. That's often what they say. At first sight, there isn't really much wrong with that. Doesn't God invite anybody to come? Doesn't He want all to be saved? As we develop that this morning, we want to reach an interesting consequence or conclusion. But let's step through this slide first before we get to state what that is. As often as that particular slogan occurs, you and I might do well to at least reflect on, look at the life of Christ. Who did He invite to come? We might begin with that listing, as you can see, about the middle of that slide. Jesus, of course, extended a powerful invitation to Jews. Do you remember in Matthew chapter 10? There was an occasion in which there, on that limited commission, the Lord specifically told the apostles, You go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Only to the Jews, not to the Gentiles yet, but at that point, to share with them the blessed invitation to come, to understand what the Lord had to offer. Jesus told those apostles, You heal their sick, you cast out demons, you take care of them. And may I say, He quickly told them, Don't you jump about from house to house. If anybody's happy to receive you, you stay there with them. This is not a money-making fiasco. Well, notice as the Lord invited the Jews to come, look at the Gentiles. It wasn't that He was only interested in Jews. In Matthew 8, verses 5 and following, there was a centurion, and there, of course, the Lord was such that he complimented this man. I've not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. This centurion was even quick to say, you don't even need Jesus to come to my house. If you simply give the word, my servant will be healed. Jesus commended this man's faith and highlighted the grandeur and the greatness of of the kind of faith that's involved in what that man said. You'll notice one more thing, even Samaritans. I would ask you to reflect on John 4. There was a Samaritan woman of all people 
She was, of course, such that when she came to the well to draw water, here was the master sitting there, and Jesus initiated a conversation with her. And he admitted to her, I'm the Messiah, John chapter 4, verse 26. And not only that, she went into the city and told those people there, and they, in fact, many of them became believers or at least interested in Jesus. Maybe we can summarize all that we've said so far with this passage. Come unto me, all you that labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Whether it be Samaritans, whether it be Gentiles, whether it be Jews, the Lord had an interest in them because He had a message for them. You and I shall ask as the lesson proceeds, what did they have to do to respond to that invitation? As you can probably already tell, repentance was going to be needed. As you and I close that slide, let's then note this. Come as you are quite often is what we're told. But here's what the Bible so strongly and resoundingly teaches. You may come as you are, but you can't stay as you were. May I say it again? You're invited to come as you are, but you may not stay as you were. There's a critical element of repentance in here. And that repentance will be the major matter in the remainder of our subject time today. What is repentance if we had to define it? How does one appreciate carrying it out? With that in mind, let's go to the next slide and develop those points, starting with this one. Let's use this slide to cement in our thinking what's included in and what's meant by the whole subject of repentance. May we state it like this. First of all, this is so critical, God wants everybody to do it. In 2 Peter 3 verse 9, the Word of God testifies, God is not slack concerning His promise as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to usward, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. This is so vital, so significant, that God would wish every individual to comply with it, every individual to take care of it. For that reason, the next point is this one. It should be noted how basic repentance really is. May I direct your attention to Hebrews 6, verse number 1? As the Hebrew writer opens that sixth chapter, which really is a continuation of the thoughts of chapter 5, we find this rather unusual statement. I say it's unusual primarily based on our vantage point today. And that verse reads as follows. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on into perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance toward God, or rather repentance from dead works and of faith toward God. As the Hebrew writer would describe it, there are certain elementary things in obedience to Christ, certain basic matters that one would expect that one could advance beyond that pretty quickly. The Hebrew writer says repentance is an elementary thing. You need to, in fact, mature so you can chew on more meatier matters of the faith in this. Repentance is basic. It ought not be something that a mature Christian struggles over. It ought to be something we know what this means, we understand what's involved in it, 
we're not saying it's always trivial, but at least we should understand what it is. For that reason, look at what's next on the slide. Repentance, and you and I should note then, is not merely a feeling of sorrowfulness. It's not merely a feeling, if you please, of guilt. I've been caught doing something badly. Did your mother or father ever catch you doing something and you knew you shouldn't be doing it? But they caught you red-handed. Well, it's pretty easy at that moment to feel a bit of sorrow. I'm sorry I got caught. I'm sorry I'm going to be punished for this. But in the final analysis, I might not really be that sorry I did it. There's a big difference here. You'll notice repentance, as it is defined in the Word of God, is not merely feeling sorry for something. It's not merely this inner feeling of guilt, if you please, over what I've done. Could I draw your attention to 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10? There we have this rather remarkable statement that helps us define this. 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse number 10 reads as follows. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. The language, as that verse puts it before us, godly sorrow leads to, it works. Notice it's not the same thing as. It is important to feel sorrow over sin, to feel a sense of pain, if you please, concerning it. But repentance is not just that very bad feeling about it. Repentance is not merely this sense of sorrowfulness concerning this which I've done. That sorrowfulness, as important as it is, will lead us to note pretty carefully in a moment what really is this issue in repentance. You'll notice then what is repentance. If it's not merely feeling sorry, if it's not merely this feeling of guilt, let's go back to the book of Acts. Let's start in chapter 3, verse 19. Acts 3, verse 19. The second gospel sermon of which we have record was preached by Peter in Solomon's porch. And this verse reads, In the midst of that lesson, Peter declared, Repent ye therefore, and be converted. And you might take note that word converted comes from an original word that means to turn again, to turn aside from. And so it is that repentance involves a turning away from that which was in a proper before God and turning towards something that is proper in His sight. Repentance thus begins with a mindset of criticality. I loathe what I was doing. I hate that kind of lifestyle and I do not intend to do it again. Notice it's more than a sorrow. It is a detesting character that leads one to turn aside from that behavior, whatever it was. Repentance is a change of mind that shows itself, that demonstrates itself in a change in behavior. That's very different, isn't it, from that mindset that's just a feeling of sorrowfulness. In repentance, I must turn aside from it. You'll notice what's next on that slide. The idea behind that definition, it seems, was even etched in Ezekiel chapter 18. Why don't we read that one since it provides a rather powerful foundation. Ezekiel chapter 18, verse number 30. 
The prophet of old, as God spoke through him, had these rather remarkable words to say. Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, every one according to his way, saith the Lord God. Repent and turn yourselves from all your transgressions, so iniquity shall not be your ruin. Isn't it interesting to notice that this iniquity was going to be your ruin? It was going to be what is going to doom you. But yet in repentance, you turn from those transgressions. There's that word turn even in that verse. To turn aside from that change of mind that shows itself in a change of behavior. You and I thus could close that slide by asking this. What about some examples in the Word of God of those who were said to have repented? What did they do? Maybe we could start in Jeremiah chapter 8, verse 6. And I might suggest that this is a powerful connection to Matthew 21. But let's start in Jeremiah 8. In that Old Testament book of Jeremiah, the following rather unforgettable statement is found. I hearkened, God said, and heard, but they spake not aright. No man repented him of his wickedness, saying, What have I done? Every one turned to his course as the horse rusheth into the battle. If we may paraphrase, God said, I called you. I told you what needed to be done, but yet you continued with the status quo. You didn't repent. So apparently repentance was that change in behavior that was prompted by a change in thinking. Today, thus, when you and I read about repentance, may we not merely attach it to a feeling of sorrowfulness, but rather attach it to a change in behavior that was prompted by a change in thinking. As I mentioned, Matthew 21 is perhaps the best New Testament definition since that was spoken by our Lord Himself, let's just read the fullness of it. Jesus made this description. Matthew again, chapter number 18, Matthew chapter 21, beginning in verse 28. But what think ye? A certain man had two sons, and he came to the first and said, Son, go work in my vineyard. He answered and said, I will not. But afterward he repented and went. And he came to the second and said, Likewise, and he answered and said, I go, sir, and went not. Whether of them twain did the will of his father? They say unto him, The first. Jesus saith unto them, Verily I say unto you, that the publicans and the harlots go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came unto you in the way of righteousness, and ye believed him not. But the publicans and the harlots believed him. And ye, when ye had seen it, repented not afterwards that ye might believe him. Jesus told that record about a father who to his two sons said, Go today and work in my vineyard. And one of them said, I will not. But the text says he repented and went. He changed his mind with respect to the commandment of the father. And not only did he feel a bit perhaps of sorrowfulness, it led to a change in behavior. He went. And the Lord used the word repent in the definition of that description. 
But you'll notice to the other son, he also gave him the same commandment. He said that he'd go, but he didn't. Well, you'll notice the Lord gave that as an illustration, helping us understand repentance again, a change of mind that shows itself in a change in behavior. It is with that in mind, why don't we close that slide and look at ancient Nineveh. Jonah was sent to preach to them. And you and I know very well the record of the book of Jonah. Jonah came to them in Jonah chapter 3 finally after spending some time in the belly of a great fish. He came to them. They heard his preaching. And the text says they repented. What does that mean? They changed their behavior. They no longer were given to what they were given to before. They turned their attention to the firmness of what Jonah had declared. And the text says that from the greatest to the lowest, they repented. In fact, even the animals. Now, we aren't to think in that that the animals, literally, a cow can't repent in the same way you and I can. But what that means is the people were so urgent in their desire to repent that they clothed the animals in sackcloth as an affirmation of the desire of the entire community to hear the message of Jonah and to respond in faith to it. Repentance, a change of mind that showed itself in very different behavior. In addition to the matter in Nineveh, you and I notice the critical matter that makes repentance so vital is because of the nature of God. He's holy. And we cannot continue, proceed in a life of unholiness and think we can ever associate with Him. He is of purer eyes than to behold iniquity, to borrow the wording of Habakkuk 1.13. Be ye holy, we're told, 1 Peter 1.16, for I am holy. Therefore, we cannot, once we learn about something that troubles and that is condemned by God, I can't think that He'll accept me as His faithful child if I continue doing this. I must repent. For that reason, the next slide will be a development of this. A development of it in the language of the New Testament commandments. I know we've devoted some attention to the Old Testament so far. But the law beneath which we serve is the New Testament. What does this set of books say about repentance? It has a lot to say about it, doesn't it? Why don't we start with John the Baptist? He was the forerunner of the Christ. In other words, he came to pave the way so that the message of the Christ would be well received by a number of individuals. And yet, the critical message of John was, Repent ye... For the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. In other words, the singular message that was identified concerning the thing that John preached, repent! All those people then that came out of Jerusalem, all of those that came out of Judea to the Jordan River where John was preaching, and his message was repent. His message was repent. Did you notice? I didn't read anything about that. Come as you are and stay as you are. That's not what John preached. He urged them to come all right. But once they got there, it was you've got to repent. You need to change your way of thinking, which will mean a change in your actions, in your behavior, your conduct. Today, that message is still as strongly presented in the Bible as it was even then. 
John's statement of repentance was so strong in Luke chapter 3 that there they had some good questions about it. There were even publicans who upon hearing the preaching of John made the attestation, I'm going to then give back if I've taken anything inappropriately. Beyond what I should, I will restore it. That's a strong element in behavior. Those who previously had taken things that weren't theirs and now I'm going to give it back. Is that not a critical idea in repentance? What about the next example, Jesus Himself? In Luke chapter 13, we'll come to this statement wherein Jesus said, Nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. And that language is sufficiently strong. It's repeated verbatim two verses later. Luke 13, verse 3, and then also verse 5. Except you repent, you will perish. May I suggest that each of us keep in mind the strength of that statement. If I don't repent, I'm going to perish. If you don't repent, you will perish. That has reference to the eternal character of being distanced from God in the doom and ruin attached to that separation. Repent or perish is what Jesus taught. Back in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17, earlier on in His preaching ministry, it's not as though He developed this importance of repentance later. He started out that way. Repent ye, Jesus taught, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The identical message John had preached. Perhaps even today, so many centuries this side of those statements, it is worthy of us to come to the next observation. If John preached it, and if Jesus preached it, what about the apostles? After the Lord was crucified, and after He ultimately was resurrected, and after He went back to heaven, He bequeathed those apostles to preach the truth, of course. Did they preach it? May I direct your attention to Acts 2.38. The very first gospel sermon in many ways it was ever preached, the day the church began. Peter in boldness, he together with the other eleven stood up and they declared very pointedly, You put to death the Son of God. But the bars of death couldn't hold him up from the grave he arose, they said. But then arriving at verse 36, a bit of a conclusion. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain God's made that same Jesus that you crucified, both Lord and Christ. In other words, the one you put to death, victory is able to be enjoyed through Him. And verse 37 says, They were pricked in their heart. And they cried out something. What they say? Men and brethren, what shall we do? Peter said, Repent. The first word out of his mouth in answer. He didn't say believe. They already believed. They were pricked in their heart, you see. They were already convicted of the truth of what Peter had declared. And when they said, what shall we do? He said, repent. You've got to change your way of thinking, change your outlook and perspective, which will manifest itself in a change of conduct. Repent was what they were told. Now certainly the verse goes on to highlight baptism, but notice repentance was a prerequisite to baptism. Look at the very next chapter in Acts chapter 3 the very next gospel sermon. 
We noted this one earlier in our lesson today, but perhaps it's time to place it in its context. Repent ye therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. So here, there was another gathering. This one was in Solomon's porch. And there we notice, to them they were told, repent. And the phrase again is, turn again. A change of mind that shows itself in a change of behavior. As you trace that development through the book of Acts, we notice a number of other cases, such as Acts 11, verse 18. Here, as Peter reflected upon the conversion of Cornelius, it says, When they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. No eternal life without repentance. That was what the Gentiles appreciated. Maybe one final passage would be Acts 20, verse 21. Two chapters later, after the events in the city of Corinth, you notice the statement that's made on this occasion. Testifying both to the Jews and also to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. There are so many other references to that repentance in the book. But maybe the closing thought to that slide will now put it directly to you and me. John the Baptist preached it. Jesus preached it. The apostles preached it. But those people lived back then. What about us today? Are we demanded the same? The lesson text of the morning was in Acts chapter 17. Since a fair amount of comment is perhaps deserving based on that passage, I'd invite you to turn there with me. In Acts chapter 17, Paul, on the second missionary journey, came to the city of Athens, the intelligentsia of the ancient world, and to that group of people. Paul was so disturbed, he saw various and sundry statues and gods and idols erected to anything seemingly imaginable. And yet, the one they call the unknown God was the closest one to the God of heaven. And Paul said, I'd like to tell you about Him. And he began to preach about the creation. And he preached about who made the, world, the earth and everything on it and in it. And he preached about the magnitude of every good thing that comes from God, including life. And then he reached this conclusion in verse number 30. And the times of this ignorance, all these idols you folks have erected here, the times of this ignorance God winked at. But listen to me, He said, God now commands all men everywhere to repent, without exception. That included the Athenians. It included those of ancient Rome. It included those of ancient Thessalonica. It includes those of modern-day Cookville and Gainsborough and Sparta in every other place the foot of man may sit upon earth today. One simply cannot please God without it. The times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent, because He hath appointed a day, in the which He will judge the world in righteousness by that man whom He hath ordained, whereof He hath given assurance unto all men, in that He hath raised Him from the dead." The necessity of repentance is so keen. It is so clear. 
And so it is, as you and I close that one, Paul preached this everywhere he went. Not only in places like Jerusalem, but in Acts 26, as he made ready for that voyage on, let's say, to Rome, he preached it there. Isn't it interesting in light of all of those places? Let's use some specific examples. It's easy enough to say everybody needs to repent. But let's make sure that we include ourselves in that. Why don't we start like this? So a person who is an alien sinner, that is to say one who has never become a Christian, that person, the Bible commands, must repent. For example, look at again the text that might well be noted in Acts chapter 2, verse 38. In Acts chapter 3, verse 19. Here were Jews gathered, so they weren't Christians. They weren't individuals who previously had obeyed the gospel, and yet they were told, you must repent prior to baptism in order to satisfy and please the God of heaven. And so today, an individual who would wish to become a Christian, you first must understand the urgency and requirement of repentance. In many ways, that's why that a preacher or elders are very cautious. When a young person especially says, I'd like to be baptized, it's very important to appreciate, does this person understand? Does this person really appreciate what's involved in the matter of repentance? So if an eight-year-old or a nine-year-old comes down the aisle and says, I want to obey the gospel, it's very important to ask some questions. Questions about, do you know what sin is? Can you explain in your own words what it is and how God feels about it? Could you tell me what repentance means? You do understand how vital it is. Could you express in your own words then why you're doing this? Why do you want to be baptized? If the person, by his or her answers, expresses then a lack of understanding, it would not be appropriate to baptize them at that moment. Perhaps teaching is in order. But you notice in every one of these instances, an understanding of repentance precedes baptism. That's one of the strong reasons why babies are not to be baptized. I know that was a matter of contention back in the Reformation and the early Restoration movement. Should we baptize infants or not? An infant can't believe. And yet Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized. Belief precedes baptism as well. An infant can't believe and they can't repent. In fact, they have nothing to repent of. They don't have any sin. Ezekiel chapter 28 verse 15. But maybe it's fair to say an alien sinner must repent. But not only that, what about an unfaithful Christian? Suppose a person does obey the gospel, but then at some later time chooses to distance himself or herself from that truth. What does God require of that person? Let's look at Acts chapter 8. There we have an example of a person in that situation. Of course, it was Simon. Here was a person who had quite a bit of influence in the area of Samaria. And when the Philip came to that territory and came to that region, Philip taught the blessed gospel of Jesus Christ. And not only that, Simon heard it and responded. Simon obeyed the gospel. 
Here was a man who had been a sorcerer. He gave that up, and he obeyed the gospel. But then Peter and John came to the area, and they laid their hands as apostles and transferred the power of the Holy Spirit. And Simon wanted to be able to do that. In fact, he offered them money. I'd like to buy from you the capability of conferring the power of the Holy Spirit by laying on my hands. Peter had these words to say to him. May I read exactly in Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse number 20. Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Verse 22, Repent. Therefore of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. He was in the bond of iniquity that moment. He had become enslaved to sin again because he thought the Word of God could be bought with money, the power of transferring the Holy Spirit that way. And Peter said, you've got to repent. To any unfaithful child of God today, the message is the same. You or I must repent. Meaning to come to a realization of what this is that we're now doing that the Bible condemns. And to change our mind concerning it. I can't do this anymore. And therefore, I've got to change. It is with that in mind we close that slide and say this. I said this at the outset of the lesson. It seems to me that of the steps of the plan of salvation, to hear, to believe, to repent, to confess, and to be baptized, repentance is by far the most difficult. It's easy to sit and listen to someone, and so hearing isn't that difficult. It's easy to feel a conviction in heart, well, yeah, that's right. But to change one's behavior, to lead to the point where I now know what I was doing was not right, and I'm going to exert the effort, I'm going to exert the difficulty to change it. The way I talked before, I'm not going to talk that way again. At least I'm going to make a concerted effort not to. The way I treated my people around me, I'm not going to treat them like that anymore. I'm going to change that. For all those reasons, this last slide is going to be a quick set of questions for all of us. Every one of us, as you and I have learned it this morning, are commanded by God to repent without exception. If we're going to go to heaven, we must repent. And so, what about the way you and I talk? Without a doubt, the Bible says any kind of inappropriate language, corrupt communication is wrong. If that describes you and me, I've got a question. Are we willing to repent? I've got to quit talking that way. It's just that simple. And so it's going to require an exertion of effort because old habits die hard. I've talked this way maybe a long time, but I have got to change. We must do it. Look at the second one. Are you in a habit of lying? To get yourself out of a a bad spot or a difficult position, just easy to tell a little fib, as the world would call it. But you've got to quit that. Because Jesus says, if you lie, you can't go to heaven, Revelation twenty two fifteen. 15. 
It just simply won't happen. And so it's going to take some effort. I have been in the habit of lying, and now I've got to break that habit. It won't be easy, but I've got to repent. Look at the third one. If I've been in the habit of even thinking that alcoholic beverages are okay, I can't do that. I can't think that way. Because Paul said in Ephesians 5, if I think that way, I'm going to go to hell. I simply will not be able to go to heaven that way. Well, what do I think? What do you think? I've got to think the way God does. What about sexual sin of various character? We know today with cell phones and computers, it's so easy to fall into the habit of, of pornography, to look at things on a computer and to think, nobody knows this but me. There ain't anybody on earth that knows I'm looking at this. Problem is, God knows it too. And that's a sin. Galatians 5, verses 19 and following say that it is. Am I going to repent? If I need to quit using a cell phone, don't have one. It'd be better to go to heaven without a cell phone than have one and go to hell. We have to repent if we need to. The lesson is yours this morning. As we close this lesson, I've asked some bold-faced questions on the last slide. If you are an alien sinner, I know you've never repented the way you need to. Won't you do it today? If you haven't, there will never be a better day than this one. You may never be as close as you are today to obeying the gospel. If you have, though, repented and maybe formerly at some time you obeyed the gospel, may I ask all of us, have I lapsed back into some sin? If so, I'd still need to repent. I need to. I must. Today, are you willing to? This group of people will celebrate with you. We will rejoice with you. We'll encourage you and we'll pray for you. But you need to let us know how we can help you. I hope we've each been reminded of how serious repentance is. A change of mind that results in a change of behavior. If today we could be of help to anyone, we'd like to do that. Because Jesus the Christ has empowered us with His Word and the truth of it. And if we could do that today... Won't you let us do it while together we stand and while we sing?